Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of our show. Now we've spoken about adoption a little bit before in previous episodes and its impact on a child's well-being. Today's focus is the responsibilities of the adopted parents and their relationship with the child during the process of adoption. Joining us today is Adam Pertman. Uh, to give a little background before we bring him on, he is the president, CEO, and founder of the National Center of Adoption and Permanency, which is a national nonprofit organization that provides resources, education, training, consultancy, and advocacy to improve the lives of children, family, and professionals who serve them. So thank you so much, Adam, for joining me on the show today. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, it's so interesting to talk about adoption. And I know, like I've just said, we've spoken about this before and we've spoken about the well-being of the child as well as the birth parent and their involvement throughout the process. But it's also really interesting to talk about the process itself. And I don't think we've ever really spoken about that at length. Um, and it's so interesting to sort of bring on what the responsibility of the adoptive parent is. So before we get into that and speak about that a little bit more, um, just would I would love to hear about how you got into talking about adoption and how you got into really just wanting to be an advocate for the adoption process. Well, at first, let me just say, I'm not necessarily an advocate for the adoption process. I'm okay. an advocate for best practices, for principled practices, uh, for being moral and humane to everyone involved, and for keeping the, the child uh, who grows up, because adoption is a lifelong process, not a you know one-time event. Um, and, and so my work is all about trying to make that, as long as you're going to have adoption, and we're probably going to have it for a long time, um, it should be as ethical, thoughtful, humane, um, and sane as it can, as we can make it. And mm -hmm. that's really the mission. Um, and, and I will say one other quick thing, and then I'll tell you my, my story of how I got here. Mm -hmm. um, the, I started NCAP, National Center on Adoption and Permanency, um, about going on 10 years ago now, because what I saw was practice, policy and practice surrounding not just adoption, it's the National Center on Adoption and Permanency. Permanency is what every child needs. Not every child needs adoption, and hopefully fewer and fewer because the biological parents can parent the kid. Um, but, but I started because what I saw was a model that was so focused on process, so focused on sort of the narrow pieces of it, that it too often missed the big pieces. And what I mean by that is that most adoptions today, and this is getting a little bit into the weeds early, but most adoptions today are, as opposed to in the past, 
um, and Australia has a very interesting history in this regard. Um, most adoptions today are of children with special needs who are pl placed in my country in foster care who need uh, other assistance. And that's the vast majority of adoptions. The number of adoptions of just voluntary relinquishments of infants is quite small. And the number of inter-country adoptions, it, it, it was fairly high some years ago, but it is now very small. So most of the, the children who are adopted and find other forms of permanency have special needs that, need, that have to be tended to. And the, they're traumatized, they've been removed from their homes, perhaps abused or neglected by their families of origin, whatever the reasons that they are there, they, they suffer the consequences and we have systems in place that don't deal with that reality. So we, uh, the mantra in, in my country, I'm sure yours is something similar, is that every child deserves to have a safe, permanent, loving family. Hard to argue with that. Yeah. But when the, when children need real special care um, services, then that's insufficient because then you're placing kids into families that aren't ready to, to, to help them to deal with the issues in their lives. Um, so the mantra for NCAP and the reason I started it is to move policy and practice to a point where the mantra is every child deserves to have a safe, permanent, loving, and successful family. And that's the right, how do we, how do we spell success? What do we do to educate people, to give them resources? This is not by any means just adopted families. This is what we should be doing for families. And that's mm -hmm. why the permanency in the name because you know we want permanency and permanency is usually in the family of origin we the, all families need the education resources services supports etc to help them be successful to whatever that means in their context and that's not what we have the systems in place do not do that and that's why i started ncap now that was a really long answer to that didn't even address the question you asked so why did i do this how did i get into this so I'll get, make that story shorter. So I was a journalist for uh, for almost a quarter century, uh, most of the time with the Boston Globe. I was a senior writer and and uh, editor. Um, and while at the Globe, I, I promise to make this short, while at the Globe, I did a series on adoption. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't because I was an adoptive parent, which I am. Um, it was because I saw something really interesting that I thought people didn't know enough about and I wanted to write about it. And that series was eventually, um, that I wrote was eventually, and th that series was eventually nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. So it got some attention. It, it, I did strike a nerve and it did uh, hit on an issue that wasn't sufficiently explored. Um, and, and that series led me to write my first book, which was called Adoption Nation. Um, and that that book, which got some notoriety and I was on TV and stuff like that, um, it got me some attention and the subject got deserved attention because it, it hadn't been written about in the way that I did. Um, and so, and I was offered a position at what was then called the Evan B. Donaldson Adoption Institute, which was a national, basically a think tank in the US, small <laughs> think tank. And okay. I was offered the position of leading that organization because they saw me and heard of me. And so I, I like to say that um, I did what 
every good dad would do for his kids, I quit my job um, and went into unexplored territory for me. Heading, I never headed a national not-for-profit organization before. Yeah, I was a journalist, um, but but we were successful, um, and and it did some very important work um, relating to improving standards and practices and policies. Um, that again, not just adoption, but child welfare more broadly, um, and 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 I've never looked back. I mean, that's that's. Um, so, oh, actually, the, just the one other piece. And I left the Donaldson Institute in order to form this organization because, again, I saw a need for an organization that has a different mission uh, mm-hmm. that is all about improving policy and practice, not just conducting the research and so forth that we used to do at Donaldson. Okay. That, I hope that there's some some clarity in there. Oh, no, no. I think it's amazing. There, there are few people who are able to take what they find passionate about and actually do something in order to help a lot of the people, to help the world community, to help the national community is very, there are very few people who are able to do that. So it is amazing to sort of hear the work that you started off with and the passion that's sort of driven you to do that and build up from it. And I always love to hear their people's origin story into how they got interested in the work that they're doing. And it seems like if, went from a passion project into being something that actually is now really helping, um, mainly in the US, dealing with permanency. And I definitely agree when it comes to the whole idea of a child needing that boundary, needing that permanent place for them to stay rather than just going from foster home to foster home. So it's- Yeah, that's traumatizing in and of itself. Yes, no, I've seen far too many documentaries on the different ways that between foster home and adoption and how it really affects a child and the research behind that as well is going to be very traumatizing for I couldn't imagine even me going through that so for seeing a child who is far younger than me and far more fragile than I am to be having to being forced in that situation is such a it's a very vulnerable state to be in so it's amazing to see the work well, thank you. I'll, I'll, you bring up a really good thought um, when you, you say someone like you. The fact is that a, a, a big number of the kids, they're, they're, they're not kids anymore, um, leave foster care without ever having achieved permanency, without ever having that structure and those people around them. And, and they go out into the world trying to figure out what's what and trying to survive and thrive in it. Well, we wouldn't put out families with kids who are privileged, privileged mm-hmm. with resources, wouldn't think to just put their kid out at 18 and say, good luck. I mean, we we would never think to do it. Um, and yet we do it institutionally with people who are far more vulnerable, who need that permanency, who need those resources far more. And we do it as a matter of course. And again, that's, that, that is in a nut, it's sort of in a nutshell. Uh, what I saw and why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's amazing, especially when you talk about the amount of teenagers who are close to being that stage. And it's right, the institution really sets it out to for teenagers to fail and for people who, to be able to think that 
go into the streets and just that's the way that they have to live. That's what they're supposed to do. So it's very interesting. And I love to talk about that even further down the show. But before we do that, before we get wrapped up in it, I know that I would definitely will. Um, and I'm going to be scared that everyone who's going to edit this is going to be like, okay, Diana, you got to keep this moving. So I'll keep it moving for now. Um, we're going to start off with a little icebreaker just to sort of get to know you as a person before we get to know you as a professional. Um, just share the first thing that comes to your mind when you when I say these keywords and these <laughs> key questions. Okay. So the first one is a fa your favorite genre, and it comes to a book. Um, when it comes to a book, um, fiction. Okay. Uh, do you, you more more specific? You can um, be specific. It's it fiction. I have pretty broad range. Okay, perfect. Do you have a particular favorite in mind? Um, if I have to, I can come up with it. Um, um, I, I, I just because I I happened to see um, see it on TV the other day. Um, okay. I loved 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 the book Dune, the first Dune book. Um, yeah. it was just beautifully written and just captured my imagination. And I would say, uh, got me reading more as a consequence than I had before I read it. Wow. That's, that's the amazing power that a book that that book holds then. Yeah. And all these years later, I mean, that, yeah. that but and that's partly cause I just saw the TV. True. Um, how about your favorite movie that you come to mind? Oh, easy, easy. Princess Bride. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> I love that movie. I see that movie when a, a few times a year, which <laughs> ages me because that means I've seen it a lot as it's a, an old movie, um, I, a few times a year. And sometimes I see it just because I haven't seen it in a long time. And <laughs> sometimes because I'm, I'm feeling down and I need an up, that'll, that takes me up. And yeah. sometimes because I'm up and I want to fuel it and that adds fuel. So by... That's, that was an easy one. Yeah, well, fun fact, I actually booked tickets to see the orchestra play the soundtrack for the film. So I'm very excited no, to be great. able to go see that. Because um, my sister and I are completely obsessed with that, with that film. Yep. I don't blame you. <laughs> How about your most recent podcast? My most recent podcast? Yes. Um, I have not had... a. a I don't do podcasts, so I, I mean that, um, the most listened, the most recent listening oh, podcast. I apologize. I apologize. Okay. Um, I, I'm I'm not a big podcast listener. I have to tell you, uh, okay. the last one I listened to was one by the newscaster Rachel Maddow. Um, okay. A, who who is a you know celebrity newscaster here in the states, um, and she does a series of historical um, podcasts that sort of look at parallels in history to what is occurring now. Um, and they're, they're fascinating, uh, but I'm not a big podcast guy. Okay. Um, how about a famous role model that you have? Oh God, does it have to be famous? Doesn't have to be famous. I would, it could, because honestly, and, and again, this is happenstance because it was just um, her birthday two days ago, but my mother, um, who is uh, honestly is the closest thing that I've got uh, to a role model. She led an, she died at 99 several years ago. 
Um, she led an extraordinary, she was a Holocaust survivor, um, led an extraordinary life with grace and strength and intelligence. And, and I'm going to cry. And, um, you know, the, the, the traits that you, you wish that you had and that, that you work to, uh, that you strive to take on, that you try, yeah. strive to live by. Um, so I'll, I'll stand by that one. No, that sounds like an amazing role model to have, and that's amazing to hear. Uh, to end on, how about a favorite course that you've completed? Oh, God, I haven't taken a course in way too long to answer this question. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the, the truth is that I, I, I love learning and I love um, courses. And in <laughs> a younger time in my life, I thought, uh, being a college professor would be my retirement dream job because um, I because I, I, I love the atmosphere. But I spend so much time as a writer, as an editor, as a, a researcher, doing all the things that I do. You know, I'm constantly learning, constantly learning. Um, but it's not through courses, not through formalized courses. So it's a life learning, life lesson. It, it, it very much is. Perfect. Well, that's always what we love to hear. Um, now, we're talking a lot on adoption, and we're talking a lot about the family and the family systems today. Um, I know that everyone has a very different definition as to what family is to them and how, what the responsibility of a family is. So to your, in your own words, to your own understanding, what do you think the definition on the ideology of a family is? Well, it, 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 I will answer the question, but the subtitle of my book, Adoption Nation, is telling in this regard. It's mm. how the adoption revolution is transforming our families. And okay. so I, I, very, I think a lot about that. Um, our families in every country, uh, um, I, that's not true in every, that was an untrue thing I said. In many countries, <laughs> um, families are really being transformed, certainly in yours and mine. Uh, family units, as we as we think have thought previously of them historically, you know, with the sort of nuclear mom, dad, two kids behind the picket fence. Um, that's not that was never very real, but it certainly um, isn't now. I mean, it, and it isn't just because of adoption by any stretch of the imagination. Div you know, divorce rates are fifty percent. Um, alternative kinds of families with two moms, two dads artificial insemination, adoption, um, foster families. I mean, the number of types and number and types of families is probably unprecedented today it, it, as compared to the history that we have uh, gone beyond. And mm -hmm. it's still changing. It, it's, ra it's changing before our eyes um, every day. So it isn't by any stretch just adoption, but adoption feeds into and fuels th th that change. <laughs> you know, I, 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 when inter-country adoption was a bigger thing, I used to say out loud, but this is still happening in other contexts, that, you know, one, because uh, Americans adopted a lot of little girls from China. Yeah. And irrespective of the politics and all of the other issues which we can discuss, um, I say in speeches a lot, you know, one little girl being bat mitzvahed in a synagogue who is Chinese mm -hmm. changes the way the people in that synagogue think about 
what do Jews look like? Well, a, one little girl, it, 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 we use that saying little girl can be a kid of color, of any color. Um, mm-hmm. But in a schoolyard, being picked up by her two moms changes mm-hmm. the way people think about what what is a family? How does it work? What do they look like? Do mm-hmm. kids look like their parents? Do they need to? The, the answer is clearly no, and lots of kids don't look like their parents. Yeah. But this is institutional. And so in, in subtle ways and some not so subtle ways, it affects how you think about families, how they're formed, what they look like, et cetera. And I think, so I think we're in unprecedented times in that regard, um, which I'm 100% fine with. Um, <laughs> and, and adoption is a piece of that puzzle. And it's a piece of that puzzle that is not, that's not very well examined or understood. I think, especially what you're saying is, is so correct. I think everyone's view of family is very different now than it used to be, especially when it comes to the whole idea of that parent, that children don't look, don't have to look like parents, they don't have to be biologically, they don't have to be blood related to be a family. So I love the fact that, and I also think that, that I love how we normalize that situation in today's world and today's society. Well, we're getting there. We, uh, we yeah. A lot sure. of stigma, shame, embarrassment, you know, it, it just, it, it's a, the words you're adopted are still used as an insult. Oh, don't listen to him. And it's, you know, he's adopted. Mm. What has he got a disease? Um, yeah. but so, so we're getting there. We're, we're making some progress though. I have to say in my country, it's been stunted, um, because of the politics of the day, you know, mm-hmm. trans people and gay people and uh, all, all kinds of non-traditional uh, members of families are having a harder time today rather than an easier one. And we were on a better trajectory. Um, so I, I think normal, your word normalization is a great one. It is the goal, um, level playing field, uh, but we're not there yet. We're not quite there yet. We still yeah. got work to do. Oh, that is that is 100% true. And especially when it comes to the whole idea of being adopted. And I think people really use that. Like you said, people use that as a insult. People throw it in other people's faces when they find out that that, that, that is the case. So what is the whole idea of being adopted? What is the whole idea of what adoption is? Well, in the ideal world, well, first, in the ideal world, there's no adoption because everybody can make babies. Everybody can has the resources to raise their kids, yeah. you know, they, and no one's abuse. There's no abuse and neglect and everything is honking door. Okay. But we don't live there. Um, okay. So it, it, what the, this is a complicated question because uh, adoption's history um, and the reason it needed to be sort of, sh- we needed to shine a light. Um, I write in my book that, um, you know, roses grow in the light, but light also um, shows imperfections. And Mm -hmm. so, and we need to be in that light and and deal with those, both the beauty of it and the imperfections of it. And what it is, is an alternative. Again, I I know I'm, I'm in the weeds here, but sometimes it's not adoption. It's not formal adoption. Sometimes it's guardianship. There are different forms that this takes, but but what it means is that it's it should be, and it is on legally it's on a level playing field. When you adopt a child, 
your family is on legally is supposed to be on a level playing field with anyone who gave birth to a child. That's not always true in practice, but what is adoption? It's a legal form of forming a family that provides rights and responsibilities to all the, to the parties involved um, so that they can live good, normal lives. And very, very importantly, um, so that the child's in, in, in an adoption, the child's interests are first and foremost. If you make a baby, it could be because the condom broke and, or for a dozen other, you know, not exactly well-planned reasons. That's not what happens with adoption. It's a plan. Um, and so, and it's important to keep that in mind. And the other big distinction is that biological family formation, and this is not an insult or anything, is is all about the parents. Oh, I can't, I'm going to be a great dad. I'm going to be a great mom. Can't wait to bring, nobody says, I'm going to bring the kid into the world because it's a great place. And I really want, it. it's, it's very adult-centered. Yeah. Um, adoption at its best is not about parents who want kids, but it's mm-hmm. about kids who need families and meeting that need. Mm-hmm. And that's a real difference. That's a substantive substantive difference. So, you know, different isn't better or worse. It's just different. Um, there, are, there are issues in everybody's life, um, and that's true in adoption. But it's, it's a way of, at its best, it's a way of finding permanency, um, security, safety, love uh, mm-hmm. for children who need families. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to what the responsibility of an adoptive parent is, an adoptive family, what is the key, what do you see are the key responsibilities that they are supposed to hold in terms of a child's well-being? Well, it's a great question. Um, so in the past, uh, in a little history lesson, um, in the past, um, people, first, most children who were adopted were, you know, were not from foster care, were not from, abro- from other countries. They were children born to unwed mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and primarily white on white mothers, uh, certainly in my country and probably yours, and uh, certainly yours. I know a little bit about your yep. history. Not so good. And what we didn't do, and what those parents were told by social workers and, and social norms was just, and, li- and sometimes literally told, oh, just raise her as though your she was born to you. And that, that was the instruction. And now, bye, good luck. Um, and, you know, this African-American child does not look like <laughs> his white mother uh, can't, and can't raise, and she cannot raise him as though she were born to him because the issues in his life are very different mm-hmm. than the issues in his, right? In hers, rather. So, the, so it, it, it reminded me of a question I'm, I'm rambling on. No, um, it's oh. just basically the responsibilities that a... Oh, oh. so yeah. what are the responsibilities? So that has changed. Uh, I think almost any sane and reasonable and ethical social worker or other professional would tell you that this is a lifelong process uh, and your responsibilities, first and foremost, are to be a good parent and do mm-hmm. all the things, the same things that other parents do in terms of health, education, and, and all of that stuff. But you, but as an adoptive parent, I think you also, I don't think, I believe you have a responsibility to maintain that the child's um, recognition of and links to and relationships with the the family and community of origin. 
um, where they came from is really important. We all know that where we as individuals come from is really important. Well, that's not less true for the adopted child. Um, it, it, it's, if anything, more true because they don't have the day-to-day connections to it. So they have to. Uh, so your responsibility of parent is 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 keeping your kid connected to um, his or her past or their past rather, um, and their their the the people in that past, the the race and ethnicity and all those other issues in their past. So it's it's a lot. Um, it's uh, it's roughly with this you know small way analogous. You know if you have a child by by you know the old fashioned way, um, and the two parents are of two different races, ethnicities, religions, etc. Well, you're not going to pretend that that half of that isn't part of that child's life, yeah. and um, you're going to try to keep them connected and educated and. Um, and so forth. So the responsibilities of an adoptive parent include that. Mm-hmm. And um, and mo- most often uh, in the U.S., and I think growing in most places, including internationally, um, it is to literally keep them connected to the human beings who created them, um, you know, in, in so-called open adoptions. Um, mm-hmm. And those vary wildly from, you know, occasional letters and emails to regular visits. And I know people whose, whose babysitter on Friday nights was the birth mother of their child. Um, wow. So, uh, and so I think that, you know, recognizing that everybody involved is a human being who deserves to be treated with dignity mm-hmm. um, and, and understanding the, the profound loss that they, they encountered, what, even if they made a reasoned decision, the loss is still massive and lifelong. And so those are a lot of elements that, it, so so it's maintaining racial and ethnic identity. It's sometimes maintaining context. It's helping the child literally and figuratively feel comfortable in their own skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's where, you know, your very good word earlier comes in too. Normal, normalization <laughs> is what's necessary. Kids mm-hmm. don't want to feel like they're weird or, or you know, out there. Um, they don't want to be treated uh, as, as insults. They, they just want to be normal kids. And that yeah. means we have to have a big norm <laughs> um, <laughs> that includes a whole lot of people. And, and it's very inclusive. Um, and I think that's part of what, you know, politicians and others, and not just politicians, regular people who, who harshly judge Vary, the various kinds of families that there are um, aren't getting it. I remember years and years ago when I was at the Donaldson Institute, we published early on, we published a study relating to gay and lesbian adoption. Okay. And back, and I got so much nasty mail, it was beyond belief. You you would have thought I was, you know, put out a research on how to, how to wipe out a planet or something. But, you know, ugly stuff. And I remember vividly, I think I still have it somewhere, an email from somebody, a diatribe, just, you know, harm that it causes and on and on and on. And the last sentence or the next last sentence said something like, now, if they could all be like my nephew, Joey, you would be fine. Okay. Because he knew someone who was gay and who was fine. And so being, not being in the light, not 
being out, not being included, has real consequences. And because when you when you do normalize, suddenly everybody around you says, "Oh, that's okay," because um, yeah. everybody's got that nephew Joey or niece, whatever. Um, and over time, they they get it, but not if it's secrets and lies mm -hmm. um, and um, and deceptions. I mean, some people to this day, hard to imagine, don't tell their kids they're adopted. Um, yeah. You know, it's quite stunning. Um, the things that we do. And that sends the message that something's wrong. <laughs> I mean, you don't keep secrets about things you're proud of. So, um, you know, that, that normalization, um, that expansive view of family is really mm -hmm. important. And without making too onerous for the parents, I'm, that's not what we're talking about. Everybody has issues, you know, divorced families have issues and step families have issues and LGBTQ families have issues, and families have issues. And we have ours. And mm -hmm. those have to be addressed to be responsible parents. That's a very long answer to your question. But yeah. it's a whole panoply of stuff, and it, and you have to do it with your eyes open. And especially you know, those, there's a lot of responsibility that comes into raising a child, even if it's biologically related to you, but to raise a child that's adopted comes with a lot of emotional baggage on their end as well, especially if they've been through a traumatic sort of situation or even foster homes that's sort of been a bit traumatic and the instability that sort of goes on like we talked about earlier. So when adopting a child, what is the, do you have a way that parents need to be aware of and how to prepare themselves for that before they go ahead and bring a child into their home, especially when it comes to the emotional strength that the parent would have to have as well in order to be able to handle that. And just remember that the parents very often in adoption, not not certainly not always, but very often have their are bringing in their own issues like infertility, no small thing. Mm -hmm. um, that so you're dealing with your own issues even as you try to figure out uh, how to raise your kid in a good way. And not mm -hmm. and I got to say just for context and in a way that's not. I don't want to make it sound like you constantly have to be thinking about all the things that you have to juggle. You know, mainly you're a parent and all the good stuff comes with that and all the, the stuff when they become teenagers comes with that. And, all you know, it, it, it's part of the deal. And and most of it is lovely and, and, and wonderful. You know, it's why people keep being parents because it's lovely and wonderful for the most part, but mm -hmm. not uncomplex. Um, so I never want to make it sound like it's just this horrible juggling act. It's not, uh, but you, there are responsibilities. There are things to know there, are, et cetera. So, um, I have an unconventional answer when people ask me, what should I do before I adopt? Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it's, it, it's, it's not meant to be evasive, but it sounds a little bit like it. Um, educate yourself. All those things that I just said, all the issues that you just said, you shouldn't, it, it, it's, you can do it as on-the-job on training as you encounter those set singular issues with your kid, but mm -hmm. better if you educate yourself ahead of time and understand that there are identity issues. And if you're adopting across race, there are there are, are race-related issues. And if you're going to have an open relationship with the parent to any extent, with the, the biological parent, mm -hmm. with the first parents, you want to know how do you navigate that? What does that mean? 
uh, how do you you want to destigmatize it because people can adoptive parents can be quite concerned to met, put it mildly about oh oh my god if the birth mother is in the picture my child's going to want to live with her no that's not how it works um, you know relationships work differently than that but the sentiment is understandable so understanding the needs the realities of all the players that's a good thing that'll mm-hmm. help you and it'll relieve some of those stresses because that's the because and and maybe it'll tell you you need to get some resources you know if it's a physical thing or if it's a mental health thing get the resources and then you can do a good job as a parent um mm-hmm. but so educate yourself what does the process look like don't go to the first agency you ever saw and say okay i want to get you know you do more homework for things that are much less important mm-hmm. um so do the homework and it, it read uh you know i i remember thinking a i don't remember the name of the book but there was some big book when when my wife and i were looking to start a family uh the first i think it's called the first nine months and it was a huge seller and it was you know pre pre-birth parents reading all about this is gonna happen this is gonna happen this is gonna happen this is gonna happen well, they're educating themselves about about becoming a parent through biology. Um, the same should be should be true if you become a parent through almost any means. Educate yourself. Again, not something onerous, but something that's really good. That's going to make you a better parent and a more satisfied human being. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 where I would start. And especially when it comes to, I think you mentioned a bit earlier about the cultural differences between you and the child as well, especially if you're doing it off a different community or a different race, different religion. How important is having the child envelop themselves in their community to a child's well-being and to the relationship of the parent and the child as well? Well, ideally, children should grow up seeing people like themselves, interacting with people like themselves. It, it, it mm-hmm. helps provide positive reinforcement for who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, just to use a stark example, you know, a white couple um, raising a child of color in an all-white area where the kid goes to school with all-white kids, they, they, that kid is going to have some issues <laughs> um, that you could have avoided. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you necessarily, I think it'd be great if you can move to a, a, a more integrated area, more diverse area, um, but certainly keep the have role models around have friends around uh, go to places that 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 child sees people like themselves and can connect to um there are lots of ways to 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 do that to to make those connections um and and conversely you know not doing anything means that uh, that child is going to have a more difficult upbringing and more difficult issues to contend with that doesn't mean they're going to necessarily get screwed up or whatever. Um, not, there are no absolutes, but you're not making the, the atmosphere as conducive as you could. And we, we should all want to do that for our kids. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to feeling comfortable in their own skin. Yeah, no, I definitely think that's, that's such an important part. And I love the way that you mentioned um, being immersed in the community and trying to find a way to connect connect in a different way that's just not what you think about the world or what you, the way you see the world. So I think that's such an important part. But when it comes to the challenges and the difficulties that sort of come about when going through adopt, adopting a child, how does 
the whole adoption process, can it bring a negative impact on the relationship between families? The relationship between what families? Between every, the family members itself. So can the adoption process bring sort of a negative impact on the process? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it depends on, it certainly everything is, depends on the individuals involved in the, in the situation. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, it, it, there are compl- I would say that it has not negative impact, but necessarily, though it can have, um, but then again, having a, a, a fourth child biologically can have some negative consequences as well if you can't afford the three you've got. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, there are a lot of decisions that, uh, again, it's, it can get complicated. But uh, I, I'm not sure how to answer it. I, in ter- I mean, sometimes it has impact on sibling relationships. You know, one sibling is uh, adopted, another is not. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it has real, uh, issues in the, the two parents, if there are two parents involved in their relationship. One didn't want to do this, one did want to do this. You know, this kid doesn't look like me. Um, why is she misbehaving? My family never misbehaved like this, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But by the way, they don't complain with, this kid's a genius. No one else is my, <laughs> in my family is a genius. There are no complaints there. But um, it, it, but it adds a layer of complexity. That, again, to your earlier question, did the parents have to be aware of mm-hmm. that there might that this might um, be a factor in the relationship between the siblings? Um, that the uh, sometimes the grandparents aren't really ready for this. They were they have stigmas uh, attached to the word adoption and the realities of adoption that you don't want them to have. Now the 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 very often good news, maybe most often, is that they fall in love with the kid. Mm-hmm. Yay. And 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 they get over some of this stuff. But is it there? Of course it's there. Uh, adoption is still, uh, is not a totally normalized institution. There are lots of bad stereotypes. Um, there are a lot of, especially about birth parents, but but others as well, um, that, that, you know, people live with, that, that we all live with, and the consequences that it does make some of those relationships more complicated. And it's not just um, within the families, with schools, it's with <laughs> medical professionals who asked for, you know, it took a year, so they stopped asking for my medical history to, to treat my adopted child. You know, it, <laughs> it, 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 there's a disconnect there. So the lack of, of sort of knowledge, integration, normalization has, has, uh, has consequences. <laughs> And you mentioned something a little bit earlier, which is very interesting for me when it comes to the birth parents and the effect that it sort of has on them as well. So how does the process of adoption affect the birth parents, the biological parents, and their ongoing relationship with their child? Well, it, 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 the answer there is it depends big time. Because mm-hmm. since, mo- for so in a country adoption, very different. Um, it's hard to have, excuse me, the relationships and the communication, though much more today than ever before. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a good thing. Um, then, so I'll go, there are three types, generally speaking, of adoption. In, inter-country adoption, um, adoption, infant adoption, you know, a child, a child at or right near childbirth, and foster care adoption, where the children typically are a bit older and sometimes in sibling groups. So they have different kinds of needs. Um, 
and and the realities are different in in all of those cases. Um, the kids internationally, that's a whole other subject, and it's it's complicated, but it's happening more and more. And we see uh, adoptees for, who are adopted. I'll, I'll use the U.S., but it's saying true for you as well. You know, ad- adopted people when as they get older, we have curiosity, have reason to to need medical information, have uh, want genetic information, and and they want some relationships with people who look like them and who created them. And so, you know, they're going back to Korea, they're going back to China, they go back not just to search, but to 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 get in touch with their their origins, right? Their origin stories. Um, and so, that's I think. Uh, that's a different situation in terms of, of biological relatives, um, though I know lots of people who have reconnected with them internationally. Um, for infant adoptions, over 90% of all infant adoptions, of which there aren't that many in the U.S. each year, over 90% are open adoptions. So mm-hmm. the the um, first parents, birth parents, are, are involved from the get-go and people know each other, they get to understand each other, um, in almost all cases, the um, pregnant person, and and if they have a mate, uh, that that one as well, um, choose the new parents. That's mm-hmm. that has real big implications when when that happens in terms of again feelings and relationships and so forth. It does not mean that they don't feel pain. I can't imagine the the we know from research experience that you know it's a lifelong trauma um, mm-hmm. to part with your child, whether you do it voluntarily or not. Um, and, and so that so over 90% open in, in the infant adoption world. And in the foster care world where most adoptions take place, um, it, it's more complicated because um, most kids are in foster care for reasons of abuse and neglect. They're not always legit. There are racial issues and ethnic issues and financial issues that lead to some of those removals. Um, and we don't do, going back to my successful families model, and we don't do a whole lot to help people be successful in their own family. So they don't, so the kids don't wind up in foster care, which would be, you know, a, a much better choice for all, for any society. Um, but in that case, the relationships differ enormously because there are courts involved, um, and they're they're making decisions or safety issue involved, and they're making decisions. But the clear trend, and it's important, is toward more openness, honesty, and relationships, mm-hmm. even with those with even if there were difficult circumstances. And that tells you almost everything you need to know about the imperative, this biological imperative, even if you raise in a different family, um, to stay to have connections to understand your roots, to feel comfortable in your own skin, again, mm-hmm. so to speak, and, and, and literally, um, and to and when they're appropriate, uh, it, it have relationships. And all of that is being, you know, accelerated beyond description by the internet, by DNA testing. You know, it, 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 those relationships and that knowledge is being, are being developed at lightning speed nowadays. Mm-hmm. And when Very it comes different. to when it comes to the idea of you know having that relationship with biological parents and searching for them again, when it comes to the children of the adopted child, finding that the biological 
grandparent, for example, how does, is there, what are some research or statistics on that outcome and that sort of situation that can happen? Well, we don't have the statistics because um, there are no repositories. There might be some one-off research project somewhere, but that's a hard one to, to nail down. Um, <laughs> there's no sort of central registry. We don't even know exactly how many adoptions there are every year. Um, we do from foster care because, um, because those are in government, the statistics are the government's to, to keep. Um, and the same is true with inter-country adoption because everybody needs a visa. So you can count those. But, you know, the, the infant adoptions are much harder to track. And so are, um, excuse me, um, and so are um, the people who are reuniting. You know, there are adoption registries, they're online. Um, people use them in the privacy of their own home. They, they get together without necessarily announcing, though I expect they're, they're discussing it on Facebook. Um, and they're finding each other on Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. One other, and I'll, I'll keep addressing your question, but one of the other really important thing is in many of these registries, there are more people looking for their biological siblings than for their parents. Mm -hmm. So siblings are a big part of this game. They didn't make, they weren't involved in the decision. <laughs> you know, they, they're just siblings or half yeah. siblings or full siblings. And so a lot of the, these reunions and communication is not all sort of terminated at a reunion where everybody hugs and, and lives happily ever after. You know, there are relationships like you have with many other people. Some are very close. I know some mm -hmm. of them and they're great. Some are, you know, once in a while. And some are happy they met and they're, they sort of move on with their lives. There's everything, all of the above. Um, and, and, and it's happening at a, a very high rate and a very fast pace, but we don't know the numbers. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, to, to your question, uh, 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 often, again, who knows how frequently, but often um, an adopted person starts searching when they have their own family and mm -hmm. they see this connection and they want to see what, where was my connection like this. It doesn't mean they don't love their parents who raised them. Doesn't it, It's just, again, it's a different construct that needs mm -hmm. to be normalized. Uh, lots of people have more than two parents, lots and lots. Um, and, mm -hmm. it, and, it, and it shouldn't be a competition, um, but it should be respectful. It should be understood that those those people who created this this human being, you know, they have feelings and lives, and never probably for a moment forgot about that about that human being. And so mm -hmm. it, it's it's a generous. Um, I I don't know what the right word is. It's it's a very humane way of thinking that. It, it, that it's okay, you know. It's and and it doesn't mean you have to have a relationship. Lots of people don't like their sibling, don't like their parents, don't like their, you know, don't like their school teacher. It's okay. Everybody makes their own decisions for their own reasons, um, but it shouldn't be institutionalized that that's not okay. You mm -hmm. want to see the person who created you. What's wrong with you? Everything's right with you. You want the same thing everybody else does. Um, but we haven't. Got, but again, tracking back to what we were talking about, so it's not all normalized, you know. Mm -hmm. If uh, someone in a biological family wants to meet, you know, cousin Kevin in Ireland, that's cool. That's really great. Yeah. But but if that same person wants to meet their biological brother in Ireland, oh, are you sure that's okay? Is that a good? Yeah, it's probably gonna be okay. Mm -hmm. 
And this leads us in perfectly with the practice and habit part of our show, talking about um, your own personal practices and something or practices that you've seen um, have a positive result. So what are some practical experiences or some habits that you have seen make a significant impact on families who have gone through the adoption process? Well, I, I don't know if this is exactly what you're looking for, but a, a story comes to mind because mm-hmm. it's very, very personal and I'll try to keep it together as I tell it. Um, it so when when my older son, Zach, was, I don't know, he was probably nine or 10, I don't remember exactly, slept in a bunk bed. Um, and every night I would come in and sing to him. Um, mm-hmm. And have a little conversation and then sing to him. And um, so I remember one day I came in and for no reason really at all, the word adoption is not problematic in my household given, you know, what I do and what I think. So, and we, you know, we were very open with the kids from the get. I'll tell you a quick other story. So, and it's a true story. Um, Years ago, a, a social worker put the, put a baby in the arms of the new parents, uh, mm-hmm. adoptive parents. And one of them, I don't know which, whispered to my friend Ellen, um, the social worker, when do we tell her she's adopted? First, you got to ask, why are they whispering? This child is very young. Um, mm-hmm. And Ellen leans over and says, on the way home. So no secrets, no lies. It, it's, it's the exact right advice. Um, so <laughs> adoption was never a secret or whispered in my house. Um, and my kids, I think, are both proud of who they are and they have relationships and all that stuff. So I went in Zach's room and he was nine or 10, something like that. And he was reading a book. Um, today, he'd be right doing an electronic game. But anyway, yeah. he's reading a book. And for no reason, that, no obvious reason at the time, I said, hey, Zach, do you ever think about adoption or being adopted and he was not a teddy said he looked up said not really i said okay and we sang and and i left and i realized i asked the wrong question and i see if i can do this and i walked back in and i said zach do you ever think about your birth mother and he put his book down and said all the time hey it's there. It's just there. So what are the good practices? Honesty, openness. Um, the research says the, the, the most important thing um, in adoption or a, one of the most important factors in successful adoption is, what, is what's called communicative openness. Not structural openness. You know, you have an open adoption, you have a relationship, but communicative openness is in your home is adoption normalized? Do you talk about it freely? Do your children feel good about asking questions and having them answered? On and on. Communicative openness, you can sort of think about what that means. And that's a great practice. You know, you can't always have that relationship. You don't always know the family history, but you can have that openness. Mm -hmm. You can give that gift of making, again, to have that child grow up feeling like who they are is okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story with me. It's 
it's incredible to see. And I think I love the idea of, no, that's, it's an emotional story. And it's so great to have people in this world who are really normalizing the whole idea of being adopted. And I know of some friends who extended family members don't know that they are adopted and don't know that they are um, not biologically in the in the family because that's not something that parents want them to say. But it's so nice to sort of see the different side of it and how normal it is to be adopted and how it, it should be the greatest thing in the world. No matter how a child comes into a family, it, it's in a family that is loved and cared with. So I appreciate hearing that story so much. Well, I, I got to tell you, I, you know, we keep secrets about things we're ashamed of and embarrassed about, right? I mean, that's yeah. what we keep secrets about. So that's not a really good message to give that human being growing up. Um, but the, I think that I am all about the normalization of all kinds of families because uh, that's how you make people feel whole and mm-hmm. safe. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, adoption, again, it, it has a checkered history of removing children from people who wanted to raise their own children. And so I think, and and, and still has stigmas attached and, and unfair laws attached. And I could go through a litany of, of, of that stuff. Um, so we're not there yet. And so I think that it's really reasonable for, at some level for people to say, are we doing this right? Mm. Are we doing this well? Even as we try to solve whatever issues there are, though, what's really important in terms of normalization is that the kid didn't do anything wrong, did not do anything to precipitate this, did not choose which family he or she or they would grow up with, grow up in. So we owe it to them to get that level playing field. We owe it to mm-hmm. them. They didn't do anything wrong. They had no role in the decision. Um, and so, you know, I think the work is really important and we should be moving toward a day. And I say this as a, both as a professional and an adoptive parent, we should be moving to toward a day when it, we don't need to do it. When people, you know, when people can have the resources and education, not education, isn't it? When they have the resources um, to raise their own kids and mm-hmm. uh, at resources and services that they need to re- raise their own kids. And and we as adoptive parents, you know, there will always be a role for us. But, you know, reproductive technologies are going to catch up too. And so yeah. in, while we're in all of these transitional times, what we shouldn't do is retain the stigmas, retain the shame make people feel bad about who they are. That's that's not good for anybody and, and it isn't just true in the adoption context. Again, what we are seeing in, in my country is a, a lot of renewed shame and embarrassment and, and stigma um, attached to, being reattached to people who thought that we were moving past it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I definitely agree. And I think there's so many things that we can do to improve from where we are. I mean, we've done better than we have done in previous times, but there is still a lot more that we can do for sure. And while we're on that topic, um, I'm gonna move on to the last section of our show, which is the open mic. It allows you to share something that you are greatly passionate about and you sound like a greatly passionate about so many things. So I would love to hear um, 
something that you would love to say in the last couple of minutes or so that we have on the show? Well, yeah, I, I was thinking about what, what this would be, and it could be a whole bunch of things. Um, but the, the one I'm going to go back to is, is something that I said probably repeatedly and too often, but that it, it, is, it is the mission in life for me um, and why I started NCAP, National Center for Adoption Permanency, remind people. Why I started <laughs> NCAP, NCAP dot, um, NCAP-US.org. And it's not because NCAP only deals with US. That's not the case. I couldn't get the URL without it. <laughs> so I had to add something to the thing. Okay. Um, the, I think that what we, if there's a, a message that I could relay to people, it is this success model. And I don't mean model literally that you build one. Um, but we, in the adoption context, you know, I, I talked about every child that was safe, permanent, loving family. Well, every child, that's all aspirational. Every child should have a safe, permanent, loving, and successful family. Why is that not part of the aspiration, part of the goal? Of course it should be, and it should, and, and it's a universal concept. That is true for every one of those diverse families that we've been talking about. We should be, as cultures, as countries, as societies, as individuals, we should be striving to say, everybody deserves to have the resources, the education, the whatever, so that their children who did nothing wrong can grow up to be as good as they can be. Because mm -hmm. when we cut people off, when we stigmatize them, when we, when we marginalize them, we're not just hurting that adult who, I don't like the way they behave or who they love or whatever. You're not just doing it to that person. You're doing it to, to their, their children, to their families. It, it's toxic. So what I would leave people with is that word success. Let's all strive to help achieve success for every <laughs> child of every age. And if we do that, we will change how we allocate resources. We will change how we perhaps even treat people but we will have a different goal in mind. And the goal is the important piece that, you know, the, that I hope we, we uh, strive for in NCAP and that I think is, is universal. Mm -hmm. well, that is amazing last words to sort of end the show on. And I think success is such a huge part of any person's life, whether you're studying as a child or an adult, success is such a big and part whatever of... it means right it doesn't yes. mean the same thing to everyone and no and so it's it's not a rubber stamp it can be emotional success and to any point in life and i think it's such an important part of what we should strive for so it's an amazing way to sort of end the show and amazing way to just sort of sum up what we've been talking about today and thank you so much adam for joining me on the show today and for talking to us a lot about the emotional tether that sort of comes along with adoption and what to be aware of and what we should be prepared for before we go into the adoption process. Um, if there is a way that audiences would like to get into contact with you to talk about things that I probably have missed throughout the show or to talk about this further with you, is there a way that they're able to get into contact with you? Sure, of course. And first they can Google me, I'm easily findable. But my, mm -hmm. my email address and stick with me here because you got to have a hyphen in there. It, my email address is a pertman, a p e r t m a n, at ncap, n c a p hyphen us dot org.
Okay, perfect. I will have that down in the link below, just so it's easy for yep. all the audiences to get. And as take well a look at the website, the website as well. Yes. Right. Yes, I'll have a link to the website as well, because I think it's such an important work that you're doing. And I'm so glad that we get to promote it here on the show, because I think it's definitely something that's needed to be to be in the world in order to normalize adoption and to normalize the permanency that's needed for children today. So thank you so much, Adam, for joining me on the show and for My talking pleasure. about this. I enjoyed and it. Thank you for taking thank time you. of your day as well. I think it's it's such a great thing to be able to see a professional and to talk to him about the situation, which is it's so great. Thank you. Okay, and, and thank you so much, guys, for listening. Um, definitely go and check out Adam's website and go check out NCAP. That's um, it's such an important organization that I think we should promote even further. Thank you, guys, so much for listening, and I'll see you all in the next episode. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by the Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so that we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent. Thanks for tuning in.